0: it's march 9th 2022 ukraine has been at war with russia for 13 days we skipped the daily update yesterday in lieu of a brief history lesson on u.s ukraine security relations so let's get caught up on the news two days ago march 7th the international court of justice began its hearings On the Ukraine versus Russian Federation case, the basis of which is Russia's unjustified use of genocide as a pretext for their invasion of Ukraine. In his February 24 address to the Russian Republic, Putin cited defending, quote, people who for eight years have been suffering persecution and genocide by the Kiev regime, end quote. Ukraine has tasked the court with confirming and declaring that no acts of genocide have occurred in the Luhansk and Donetsk regions and determining that Russia has undertaken the invasion on false pretenses. Lawyer for Ukraine, Harold Koh, quote, the risk that Russia will irreparably harm Ukraine and its people in the name of preventing and punishing a non-existent genocide is very real, end quote. International criminal court proceedings are lengthy and the case against Russia is not expected to be any different. Some cases have not reached resolution for up to 15 years. Russia's Non participation in the hearings may well prolong the case further. Russia was not present at the proceedings. In Germany, prosecutors have begun the process of investigating war crimes committed by Russia against Ukraine. The omnipresence of social media, security camera footage, military footage, and photojournalism have provided ample evidence for Germany to begin its structural investigation. Russia's use of cluster bombs, targeting of residential areas, attacks on civilian infrastructure, including gas pipelines, the Zaporizhia power plant, a nuclear waste site, the bombings of schools, hospitals and homes, all war crimes. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uses softer language, calling the abundance of imagery from within Ukraine, quote, very credible reports, end quote. This type of investigation is not new for Germany. Under universal jurisdiction, any country can try people for crimes of exceptional gravity, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, even when performed outside their own country. In January this year, Germany successfully sentenced a Syrian colonel to life in jail for murder and torture at a Damascus detention center over 10 years ago. On March 4th, in Buka, Ukraine, just northwest of Kiev, three volunteers, Serhiy Ustimenko, 25, Maxim Kuzmenko, 28, and Anastasia Yelanka, 26, came under fire by a Russian military vehicle as they approached their home. The three volunteers had just returned from a dog shelter where they had delivered food. The shelter had run out of food, and the delivery was just one of many humanitarian missions the three undertook. While under lockdown during the coronavirus outbreak, Kuzmenko volunteered as a driver to deliver food to hospitals. During the Russian invasion, Kuzmenko continued to deliver meals to elderly and children's hospitals. After witnessing the assault on their car, Valery Ustimenko, Sarah's father, dragged the three bodies from the car and carried them to his basement. Three days later, March 7th, the bodies remained in the basement. Ustimenko has been unable to bury them. Friends and family have been unable to get to the bodies for a final farewell due to the intense shelling in the area. It's now estimated that up to 2 million Ukrainians have fled the country. Trains leaving Kiev run constantly, tickets have no value as thousands of citizens wait for an opportunity to board. All trains are now essentially operating as evacuation trains, where space is limited and given on a first-come, first-served basis. Citizens plead with conductors to let them aboard. Trains are overcrowded, trips are delayed, canceled or rerouted, causing pileups at the train stations as thousands of citizens wait anxiously for their chance to board. and scared, civilians jockey for position, and many opt to leave belongings behind on the train platforms to make it easier to board. Reports suggest that conductors are refusing boarding privileges for men who are told they must remain in the city to defend against the Russian invasion. Ukraine is under martial law, and all males age 18 to 60 are being conscripted for service. At 11.22 a.m. local time in Chernobyl, northern Ukraine, the site of the 1986 nuclear disaster is without permanent power and its critical safety systems are being powered by diesel generators that have an estimated 48 hours of diesel fuel on hand. Chernobyl's security systems are offline and the plant is no longer transmitting radiation monitoring data. The State Nuclear Regulatory Board announced the loss of the power on its Facebook page. The personnel and guards working at the Chernobyl site have been unable to leave since Russia took control of the plant. They have been working for 13 days straight. Ukraine's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Dmytro Kuleba, has called for a ceasefire to allow electrical crews to restore power to the electrical grid to prevent the deteriorating situation in Chernobyl from escalating. Some 20,000 spent fuel rods are stored submerged in a large pool to reduce the amount of heat and radiation produced as they decay. Without the water pumps, the sitting water runs the risk of evaporating and exposing the tops of the rods, raising the risk of radiation leaks. Today, a staggering number of casualties has been reported in the southeast port city of Mariapol. Mariapol's mayor, Serhii Orlov, reported at least 1,170 people killed in the city, 47 of whom were buried today, March 9th, in a mass grave. Mariapol has been without water, heat, power, and gas for over a week. Orlov reports that residents are having to rely on melting snow for water, as well as drinking from puddles while media reports that residents have been breaking into stores in order to feed themselves. Mariupol has been under constant shelling. It has been surrounded by Russian forces for over a week, and the shelling has only intensified in the past 24 hours. Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister Karina Verichuk called Mariupol a, quote, catastrophic situation, end quote. Diana Santana, spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross, described it as, quote, Apocalyptic. Emergency coordinator for Doctors Without Borders, Laurent Ligozat, who is based in Lviv, hundreds of kilometers to the west, has been in contact with his staff in Mariapol via satellite phone. Cell service is mostly unavailable. Mariapol is essentially cut off. No supply lines or humanitarian corridors have been successful. Late this past Monday, Russia named Mariapol as one of the four cities where evacuation corridors would be possible. But the next day, Russian troops began shelling that corridor. Wednesday morning, Russian and Ukrainian officials announced a renewed attempt at opening humanitarian corridors, one of which was supposed to flow out of Mariupol. Mariupol's mayor said that evacuation points came under attack by Russian troops less than an hour later. Another humanitarian corridor failed. Vehicles have not been allowed to leave Mariupol for five days. Its main gas line has been bombed, its water shut off, electricity, internet, phone service. All out. I know I said that before, but it bears repeating. During the failed ceasefire, a Russian airstrike targeted a Maria Paul hospital, striking the maternity and children's wings, marking one of the most appalling atrocities committed by the Russian military to date. 17 injured with no casualties, the hospital itself is left in ruins. A crater outside the hospital, the impact point for the Russian bomb, is massive, approximately 12 feet deep. And more than 50 feet wide—a conservative estimate based on photos. Boris Johnson, UK's Prime Minister, said in a tweet, "There are few things more depraved than targeting the vulnerable and defenseless." A glimmer of good news in the morning, Thursday the 10th, as we wrapped up writing this episode. Ole Sinigupov, head of the regional state administration in Kharkiv announced that the city of Derhachi was back in Ukraine's control, having counter-attacked Russian forces as they attempted to surround the city. The Ukrainian military suffered no losses. While the ceasefire in Kharkiv was broken, some 48,000 Ukrainians were able to be evacuated elsewhere throughout Ukraine. Sumy in the northeast was able to successfully evacuate 43,000 people alone. That is a small victory, however, given that millions of Ukrainians are still stuck, and the broken ceasefires at this point play like a broken record. Mariupol, surrounded by Russian troops, was one of the many cities where a humanitarian corridor was to open for 12 hours. 400,000 residents are stuck in the city, essentially hostage to the Russian army. Mariupol is one of the most urgent areas needing evacuation. In Kharkiv proper, northeast Ukraine less than 40 kilometers from Russia's border, regular bombardment of residential buildings and civilian infrastructures has been going on for over a week. Overnight, from Tuesday the 8th to Wednesday the 9th, Ukrainian Air Force defense units managed to successfully turn back Russian bombers that had been dispatched from Belgorod, Russia, 70 kilometers northeast of Kharkiv, their target. The bombers are part of the ongoing air assault that have left much of Kharkiv destroyed. Life on the surface is nearly impossible, with thousands of residents taking semi-permanent shelter in the underground rail stations, where volunteers provide food and families sleep on makeshift beds. The success of Ukraine's air defenses has received regular praise. Just a day ago, President Zelensky announced that no bombs had successfully landed on Ukrainian soil overnight thanks to the skill of its Air Force. The Ukrainian Air Force has brought down cruise missiles. They regularly target Russian convoys, helicopters, and fighter jets. But as the resistance holds, Russia strengthens its attacks. Mykolaev mayor, Alexander Sienkiewicz, reported the evening of March 9th that Russia had begun shelling Mykolaev using Grad and Uragan rocket systems. The Grad system is a truck mounted multiple rocket artillery system, each truck capable of firing up to 40 rounds before needing to be reloaded. The Uragan rocket system is the Grad's big brother. Its artillery rounds are twice the size of the Grad and require a much larger truck. The Grad and Uragan rocket systems can utilize cluster rounds, which spread a large quantity of explosive rounds from a single rocket. Human Rights Watch reported the use of cluster munitions when, on February 22, 2022, a Russian 9M79 series Totchka ballistic missile with a cluster munition warhead containing 50 fragmentation bombs impacted outside a hospital in Vulodar in Donetsk. Cluster munitions, widely regarded as most dangerous to civilians and notably children, were banned by many nations with the 2008 Convention on Cluster Munitions, though the US, China, Russia, and North Korea have not adopted this stance or signed onto the agreement. Cluster munitions can be misdirected by wind, making them inaccurate, and many of these smaller munitions don't detonate on impact, often remaining on the ground or in the ground for years after being dropped. The munitions are typically small, about the size of, say, an average toy, making them appealing to curious children. Children are regularly killed by leftover cluster munitions long after a war has ended. In an address to his country last night, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky announced he had, quote, cooled on the prospect of joining NATO, one of Putin's primary concerns for the full-on assault of Ukraine. Still, Zelensky and his cabinet appeal for air support, if not in the form of a no-fly zone, arguably a guarantee of the war spiraling out of control then in the form at least of MiG-29 fighter jets to bolster its air force. In a surprise announcement yesterday, Poland offered to deliver 28 MiG jets free of charge. Poland offered to deliver the jets to the U.S. base in Ramstein, Germany, then to be deployed to Ukraine this proposal means that the jets would have to fly from a u.s nato base quote into airspace that is contested with russia over ukraine end quote which would jeopardize security concerns for the entire nato alliance the ukrainian air force is trained on soviet-era jets making delivery of other newer jets A non-starter, the Ukrainian Air Force would have to be retrained in order to use them. Meanwhile, Putin's stance is that any support of Ukraine's Air Force from another country would be seen as direct participation in its war on Ukraine. Neither NATO nor the U.S. have any appetite for direct conflict with Russia, including in the sky. The announcement by Poland was a unilateral decision. Poland had apparently not briefed the White House on its offer before proposing it. In the United Kingdom, however, British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said the United Kingdom would stand by Poland if it were to deliver the jets directly to Ukraine, fully accepting any consequence of that decision. And so we would protect Poland. We'll help them with anything that they need, end quote, Wallace told Sky News. The UK statement is in stark contrast to the approach from both Poland and the United States. The game of musical chairs being played with the fighter jets is to absolve themselves from direct involvement in the war. Delivering the planes to the German base doesn't need NATO approval. Delivering the planes directly to Ukraine does. I want to take the last couple of minutes here to share something really special with you and... You know, I know we haven't known each other that long, and you're probably going to think that was really nerdy or whatever, but right now you have the opportunity to turn this podcast off, go to Google or YouTube or whatever, and look up anything I've said. And you can find online media from other countries that give you more information that I haven't covered. You can go to chomsky.info and read Every archived essay of Noam Chomsky's in which he criticizes the U.S. involvement in everything post-World War II, and you can actively and easily spread that information to others. I mean, hell, that's kind of what I do. But in that freedom, to do that, to go look up all this stuff that I'm telling you, there is a struggle. In order to get truth truth out there, we have to amplify the media channels that provide that truth. Not just a podcast, not just a YouTube channel, but any media, whether it's art, music, or journalism, whatever. Those are our truths. And believe it or not, we, the individuals, are free to express and share that. What the fuck am I getting at? It can feel daunting, is what I'm getting at. It can make you feel puny when you compare your efforts with those of the biggest players in the information game. Influencers, talking heads, media conglomerates, whatever. But one of the fundamental lessons that has so far come out of the Ukrainian war is that truth is the strongest form of dissent. I'm not talking about right-wing Rothschild Biden crime family bullshit truth. That is not truth at all. I'm talking about the very real difference that we can see firsthand between an increasingly state-controlled media like in Russia, where the information provided is so skewed and so insular, That the reality of ukrainian children dying doesn't register the difference between that and the very raw and real footage being captured by ukrainians as they live through this war well the difference is basically just night and day but not everyone in russia buys into it just consider the number of people you know who buy into the facebook conspiracy theories those same people exist in russia but Instead of your cousin posting asinine articles from dubious sources on his feed, it's the official message of the state that, because it's quickly becoming the only news available, shapes those opinions and fears. The empathy that we're feeling for Ukraine globally is quite authentic, because it is a real and rare truth that we haven't experienced possibly in decades. We still have to wade through bullshit, scroll through hot takes on Twitter while we roll our eyes, But we have that very real ability to read a true thing and know a true thing, to raise suspicion, and then quash it, to ask questions, to be confused, and then to get clarity. And above all, we have the ultimate freedom of being able to tell others that truth. It's our duty now, and in all conflicts and in all times of peace, to see with such perfect vision exactly what is true the humanity above all, and all that that entails. Consider that there are 11 million Russians with relatives in Ukraine. That's 11 million potential fountains of truth, people who can speak honestly about the war through their own firsthand knowledge. The restriction and manipulation of media in Russia makes for a bleak reality. How many of those relatives will simply not be able to believe the truth from Ukraine when they hear it from their relatives? We can guess because we have the same problem in our own country. Even when confronted with death, some fail to hear the truth. If I'm being vague, I apologize. 13,000 Russians have been arrested for protesting the war in Ukraine. Facebook has shut off service to Russia. Russia has been in an ideology war with TikTok and Twitter. And Cogent Communications, the second largest internet provider in the country, is shutting down its Russia service. The colossal clusterfuck unleashed on Ukraine has turned into a colossal clusterfuck in Russia. Power and force and coercion are Putin's M.O. In addition to the quickly diminishing amount of information flowing into the country, Putin has been aggressively trying to control the information swirling around inside. From a new law threatening journalists with jail time for calling this war a war, to shutting down two independent news networks when they refused to broadcast the Kremlin's talking points, we're lucky to find ourselves not under threat for spreading information and we at least owe it to ourselves to make sure that information actually means something that does it for our reporting on march 9th 2022 two episodes in one day that's how much i love you